Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much for tuning in wherever you are around the world and the UK. And as ever, we've got so much to cram in in our time together. Uh, blimey, yeah, I delayed recording the podcast to await the um, Sue Gray update. We mustn't call it the Sue Gray report and Johnson's reaction to it and all the rest of the dramas. And I'm really pleased I did, because quite often in politics, the rhythms are unexpected. You know, you can pick up patterns, uh, and if you pick up a pattern, you can tell the way, for example, a leader will behave if that leader becomes prime minister and so on. But the daily rhythms can be unexpected. So sometimes, you know, the build-up to Prime Minister's questions is just frenzied, and then there is an anticlimax. The publication of the Sue Gray update was the opposite, uh, to the point that so many had convinced themselves that it would be a redacted anticlimax, that when it was published, they said, well, this is a redacted anticlimax. It doesn't tell us anything when it told us a lot. Um, Clearly, what has happened is this. When the Metropolitan Police and Cressida Dick, and we'll come to them in a moment, uh, announced that they were finally investigating the um, parties, uh, there was frenzied uh, negotiations. And uh, many just thought that Sue Gray had accepted the request from the police, the subsequent request to redact all the sort of key parties which they were investigating. So you would have a sort of wholly uh, banal report on the gatherings that the police didn't think worthy of investigation. And, and Johnson would then have popped up and say, oh, yeah, Sue Gray has reported, uh, she's found nothing wrong with these parties and all that. It would have been a Monty Python-style farce. But of course, when you think about it, she was never going to do that and accept that. So if you remember, last week now seems a long time ago, each hour... Uh, people were popping up on the BBC and Sky saying, no, no, they still haven't, number 10 still haven't received the Gray report and all the rest of it. She was busy, Sue Gray, thinking and planning how to deal with this new situation. And in the end, what she did rightly and with a forensic ruthlessness was not to highlight any of the parties because she made clear in the uh, few words that she did write that that would be uh, imbalanced and give no sense of the wider situation. So instead, we got a scathing summary uh, and none of the evidence, but we then got news of the essence of the evidence, hundreds of photos and emails sent to the police. And... To my mind, what happened could not have been more damning. Here was a senior official uh, with her hands tied behind her back, courtesy of the uh, spectacularly inept Cressida Dick, and yet still finding a way, after much thought and under huge pressure just to hand whatever she was allowed to hand over uh, to do so last week, um, she found a way of conveying what she thought had gone on 
and it is scathing and i'm sure a lot of you I mean, if you're listening to this podcast you've probably read the report it only takes about two minutes and it was one of those moments when it came up it was about two o'clock on the monday um you kind of nervously tap onto it wondering what you will find and you will find fairly not fairly there's no need to qualify damning assessments of what went on then we got to the statement in the comments now do you remember a few weeks ago i kind of analyzed uh keir starmer's new year speech with his agenda for the year uh, as if it was like you know you were analyzing a kind of speech in othello or hamlet you know kind of it wasn't as poetic um, nor was my analysis as great as the great kind of harold blooms and all the shakespeare geniuses um, but it's sometimes worth reflecting in a, m a moment on the speech. So Johnson, in the Commons, um, began with his uh, now a technique that is becoming familiar. Uh, first of all, uh, Mr. Speaker, I want to say sorry, sorry. Um, but he is never precise about what he is saying sorry for. He refused to acknowledge any personal wrongdoing and when asked about lying to the House of Commons. And by the way, as um, uh, one of the emailers said, I think it was uh, Joe Ruffles, something's got to be done about this rule in the House of Commons uh, where you're not allowed to uh, suggest a Prime Minister or anyone else has misled the House of Commons or has lied. I mean, when a dimension of this scandal is the lying uh, and lying to the commons, and you can't mention it, it's quite a problem um, and makes life easier for the liar. But anyway, um, there was no connection between the generalized, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, um, and any sense of culpability. And as I say, when uh, MPs found ways of suggesting he didn't tell the truth, he looked utterly baffled and bewildered and wronged um, in a way he's no doubt practiced over the years in all kinds of different circumstances uh, when faced with evidence of his misconduct. Um, then he did say one personal thing he doesn't like talking about himself because he's not fully sure who he is hence his yearning to dress up which i've talked about before and indeed this very week he's dressed up as a builder and i think a nursing assistant but he did say this odd thing i uh need to look at the mirror uh and reflect on what's happened but then there was no reference to what he might find by looking in the mirror. Instead, he said, uh, I get it, I get it, and proposed a structural uh, set of reforms of his number 10, or the number 10, uh, creating a prime minister's office and um, that kind of uh, arrangement. Now... There is absolutely nothing wrong with that as a proposition. It's always struck me as odd that um, number 10 is so kind of casually organized compared to, say, the mighty treasury um, 
although Venetia Kane has emailed after the uh, dramas of Monday to say that when she was in the Treasury, um, there were fewer people and the lines of responsibility were much clearer. Blurred lines of responsibility are part of this drama, but in the case of Johnson, not the central part of the drama. Um, yeah, so there is an argument for it. I remember, uh, uh, I think it was Blair himself who told me, or somebody around Blair, when um, a senior French politician, I think the French Prime Minister Jospin, came to uh, visit Blair in number 10, Blair introduced him to his then economics advisor, advisor on economic policy. And Jospin said, ah, thank you, Prime Minister. I would quite like to see your whole... Uh, department uh, working on economic policy and discuss things with them and Blair said look no 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 that is my economics advisor there is no one else and Jospin was bewildered that you had a mighty treasury and this number 10 a house in Westminster uh, with no formalized structures in the way that other Whitehall departments however inefficiently and with blurred lines of responsibility function so there is an argument for that but that isn't the issue with all these parties and the lying about the parties the issue is him um, it's part of a pattern as I think Keir Starmer said in his very effective response to Johnson no one really is surprised it has come to this and that's in a way one of the things I find surprising that some people claim to be a bit surprised how can they be when they look at the pattern of Johnson in both his private and public lives um, over the decades? So it's about him. And as Theresa May said, there is only two explanations as to what he was doing at one of the parties. No one knows yet much about the parties in number 10 and so on. Um, either he didn't know the rules that he himself had devised or he thought he and others were above the rules that they devised and as she said angrily which is it in one of those great sort of moments of drama in the house of commons so there wasn't really an apology of substance uh, I still think, on the whole, he has convinced himself this is a passing frenzy built up by his opponents, and uh, that's the end of it, really. And as William Hague wrote in his Times column on Tuesday morning, what he is proposing is the absolute minimum, and rather kind of vague stuff, uh, better channels with Tory MPs. It's all aimed at Tory MPs. Um, cabinet government, internal cabinet, uh, parliamentary committee, uh, Downing Street liaising much more with Conservative MPs. I suspect a lot of it won't happen. As ever with him, it has been framed to get him through the next few days and get these Tory MPs on board. And here, I think, is the overlooked dimension to this drama, really. We can all form whatever views we want. Newspapers can form whatever views they want. And by the way, you know, it's quite significant that Johnson really has managed to get the mail 
back on board. I mean, on, on Monday morning, the mail was, uh, no, Tuesday morning, the mail was screaming, print the report in full, the Gray report, um, which appears provocative, but it was about the process, not challenging the substance. If it had been a Labour Prime Minister, the mail would be screaming for that person to go with great success. It would influence the BBC and all the rest of it. They're not doing that. They're just saying publish, um, which anyway Johnson has now agreed to do. Um, but it's the Tory MPs that have agency in this. No one else does, not the voters. There could be opinion polls showing... Uh, kind of 100% of voters think Johnson lied and should go and all the rest of it, um, that would not necessarily, uh, although actually probably would, um, not necessarily bring about his downfall. It's Tory MPs. And here I think the, this element of this saga is presented in a way that distorts. Uh, because you hear people, you know, uh, political journalists, uh, conservative MPs are really thinking hard today about whether to put in their letter of vote of confidence. Oh, today they've changed their mind and so on. As if they were A, a sort of coherent collective group, and B, that they were masters of all that they surveyed, sophisticated political operators uh, d making their moves. Um, actually, what is happening is that most of them are accepting the Johnson narrative. Remember, the other key element of his speech, by the way, uh, is this. You know, for ages, he's been saying, I can't, I don't, I'm going to say it anymore. Let's wait for the Grey report. Wait for the Grey report. Well, we've had an update and it's scathing. So now, I, I, I'm not as wait for the police investigation. So, you know, in this topsy turvy world, it appears as if the police investigation, an investigation into rule-breaking in Downing Street, helps the rule-breaker. Um, and, and, and those who have bought into that include Conservative MPs. I do not believe that previous parliamentary parties, going back to the 80s, the 70s, Tory parliamentary parties, uh, would have a kind of accepted this Downing Street narrative almost, well, actually, it's quite good news for Johnson. The police are investigating. Uh, an MP has defected. A senior former cabinet minister, David Davis, has called for him to go. This is all good news for Boris Johnson. But a lot of them have bought into it. And in a way, what this saga has done has shed light on the modern Conservative Parliamentary Party. Um, we, when I'm not surprised by Boris Johnson. I bet most people aren't in some respects. I think actually those who, who felt he was one of them with the people against the elites and so on, I think they feel betrayed in a way that's highly significant. But what it tells us about the modern parliamentary party is really interesting. So, for example, when Johnson knew he was in deep trouble, when there was talk, certainly, of some of the MPs moving towards triggering a vote of confidence, Johnson and his advisers sat together and decided they would need a policy blitz to bring them back on board. And their choice of policies tell us, at the very least, what they think this parliamentary party is like. Uh, Nadine Doris was told to go out and attack the BBC, and she tweeted that this uh, miserly... 
uh, license fee settlement, although incidentally, it's a, that's for another podcast, perfectly uh, uh, manageable. Um, but it would be the last. Oh, yeah, they hate the BBC. Give them that. That'll get them back on board. Um, the other announcements were, if you remember, the army was going to be brought in to police the borders. That'll please them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that Ghana was going to be used to dump a load of asylum seekers. Oh, yeah, yeah, they'll love that. So that is Downing Street's view of the modern parliamentary party. Uh, uh, people who would return to the fold, Johnson's fold, if they were fed a load of reactionary populist nonsense. And also there must be a view that these MPs are gullible, that they will buy anything, because within hours all those policies fell apart. The Nadine Doris statement on the future of the BBC is one of the classics of our time. There she was tweeting, shows how Twitter is a safe altar, because you can say something in a hundred words, and although people can erupt, you're not really scrutinised. Um, it was quite clear she had no idea whether this would be the licence fee settlement of uh, the last one ever. Uh, she talked instead about starting a debate about future funding and all this kind of stuff. Well, starting a debate is the easiest thing in the world. It's ending it and coming up with decisions. She hadn't done so. This was red meat thrown out to buttress her friend, who she adores, Boris Johnson. Um, and then Ghana uh, announced it with no way it was going to take asylum seekers who, with a sort of machismo, you know, pretty Patel out there wearing and probably a uniform as well, turning them away. They weren't going to take them. And then the army said, well, we've already been asked several times about this. We can't see quite how it will work and so on uh, in terms of policing the borders. They all fell apart. And yet number 10 had calculated that their gullible right-wing populist MPs would lap it up and back Boris Johnson. And so it has continued in policy terms. The Brexit Freedom Bill that was published this week is depressingly hilarious. Uh, bonfire of regulations and all this kind of thing. I mean, it's hilarious for lots of reasons. Much of it is distorted nonsense. Um, but also every government, Tory government in particular, announces a bonfire of regulations. They did it when we were in the EU, and now they're doing it outside. But this is linked to Brexit freedoms. Um, so that's another thing thrown their way. And the levelling up white paper, which while it will contain some radical constitutional changes, devolution and so on, contains no additional investment. And Andy Haldane, who they brought in, who was at the Bank of England, to work with Michael Gove on the levelling up, he knows that for this to really work, to address kind of <clears throat> so-called regional inequalities, will take billions and billions. Uh, Rishi Sunak has not offered an additional penny. But that combination of policy blitzes is what number 10 assumes his parliamentary party wants. And when you listen to Tory MPs, they are probably right to make that assumption. It's interesting that a lot of Tory MPs are saying, look, we'll, we'll back Boris Johnson, but we won't, don't want that tax rights to go ahead. Um, and, you know, the tax rise, the national insurance rise, though not the fairest way of doing it, is raising necessary money. 
their new hero, these MPs, is Frosty. Old Lord Frost. I told you this would happen. You know, we hardly ever heard from him or saw him when he was in, in his negotiations with Brexit. He couldn't cope with it. He was way out of his depth. He was being outmaneuvered at every stage. His machismo, which he thought would be so successful, wasn't. So he resigned and made up other reasons for resigning, as if he was this great political titan resigning on principle that we weren't a low-tax, deregulated economy and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so he's become the pin-up of these MPs and newspapers. Frosty is in the sun one day, the mail the next day, making these demands, pompously saying, it's been reported that I might be uh, like to be chief of staff in number 10. I'm afraid I'm not available while the government puts up taxes and all the rest of it. Well, Frosty has never had to face a voter and tell them how they will pay for the shortfall in the NHS and, in theory, social care, although, as ever, with Johnson, it's also muddled, um, uh, by not going ahead with the tax rise. But that is the kind of red meat some of these MPs want. Indeed, uh, David Davis, when he was interviewed, said that's what he was looking for, first of all. And yet the Institute for Fiscal Studies, not known as a sort of Marxist body, uh, made quite clear on the day that tax rise was announced that yes, these tax rises means uh, the level of tax is uh, the highest it's been for many, many years, uh, and yet was wholly unavoidable. The means by which you raise the tax, yeah, that can be a political debate, but not the fact that the money was needed. Um, but these MPs seem to think that it's called cakeism, actually. That's the kind of philosophy. Yes, we want better hospitals. Yes, we want the tax rise not to go ahead. Yes, we want levelling up. No, we don't want it to be spent by a higher tax, and so on. Um, and so it is a curiously muddled parliamentary party. That's one thing we have found out more precisely with uh, this whole party drama. Uh, whether they will move against Johnson, only they can decide. I think they change their minds, quite a lot of them, on a regular basis. But at some point, they are going to face more damning evidence when the full grey report comes out with all these photos and emails and so on. And I think it would have to be a ridiculously high threshold of tolerance for them not to make a move at that point. But it's up to them. It's not up to any of us. And I think we are dealing with unsophisticated politicians, many of them new to politics, um, and a lot of people who are very confused and bewildered. And so we cannot work on the assumption that they will do so, that they will make a move. But I think they're going to get plenty of evidence to propel them in that direction if they are capable of moving in that direction. And we just do not know. The other light shed uh, as a result of this drama is the state of the Metropolitan Police. Now, <clears throat> Cressida Dick is um, someone who I have <clears throat> attended when she's, you know, there is a tendency in British politics, uh, sack him, sack him. Um, and the calls for her to be sacked have been constant and shrill uh, on many different occasions in recent uh, times. And I've tended to sort of uh, not 
join in and resist it because quite often uh, in these situations it's 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 more nuanced than total ineptitude and cack-handedness but um, my perhaps far too high threshold of tolerance when it came to Cresta Dick uh, was leapt over by her ineptitude last week. She clearly hadn't thought through the consequences of what she was doing. That word again, consequences. The consequences of what she was doing. I think that's the explanation. I don't believe there was collusion between the government and her uh, to get Johnson out of a hole, and I don't necessarily think it gets Johnson out of a hole. The fact that the it it, it is bizarre, you know. That, oh, the police are investigating Johnson. You know, he could be charged for breaking his own rules. Um, oh, that's good news for Johnson, and they must have conspired to bring about that situation. No, that didn't happen. But Dick and all that lot are so cocooned because to go back to that thing about Downing Street and the Treasury because of the blurred lines of responsibility and accountability she and the Metropolitan Police are accountable to both the Home Secretary and the London Mayor Uh, she made her announcement of the investigation to the London Assembly and when you have those meanwhile asserts the need for operational independence so that assertion leaves them working in the dark because they refuse to say why in any detail they didn't investigate earlier and why it took the Sue Gray evidence to trigger it um, when most of the evidence is out there one way or another in the public domain already. So for example we knew Johnson's admitted he spent 25 minutes at the bring your own bottle party Um, but we don't know. Uh, and the operational independence gives them the right of silence and to operate in the dark. And meanwhile, these blurred lines of accountability means it's quite hard to work out who is responsible for what. And when you get into these situations, um, you always know trouble lies ahead. And there isn't the urgency and the clarity of thought that is required when the lines of accountability are clear and the scope for operating in the dark unscrutinized is nil and that's I think part of what is required as well as her own departure because imagine if the full report had been published on Monday uh, before Dick's intervention it's it's quite difficult to see how Johnson would have got through that day. Now, I think it will be quite difficult for him to get through whenever they she does publish in full. It was very interesting. In the end, Johnson was forced to say he would publish in full, uh, having equivocated earlier. Um, but as I said, I'm not a Tory MP, and only they have the power to bring it about. Let's see what happens in the next few weeks. This isn't over. There are kind of apparent dilemmas uh, for uh, Labour in continuing uh, to highlight this because voters will will in the end buy the idea that Johnson and Co are putting out and the mail that this is trivial compared to other issues. Um, But, uh, you know, that is not the case. It's not trivial to set the rules, break them and lie about it and to be investigated by the police on the advice of the independent, in inverted commas, investigator. It's not 
trivial. Um, and I don't think voters, although they tended to until recently, uh, just say, oh, you know, Johnson's trying his best. Um, you know, people dying all over the oh, he's trying his best. Um, that kind of tolerance, which was also at a ridiculously high level, um, has gone. Anyway, it's going to run and run, say, you know, everyone anticipating anticlimax, and we got this. Now, over to your questions. Okay, the first one is from Stuart Grant in uh, Berkhamstead. Uh, and Stuart says, this is the first time I've contacted you after greatly enjoying the podcast this year. Oh, thank you. And attending your shows at King's Place. Oh, yeah, that's great. Oh, we had a good one last week at King's Place, by the way, where both the streamed audience and the audience in the hall predicted that Johnson would be around for quite a lot longer. And so far, very unusually, the audiences have been proved right. Um, so, yeah, uh, he, uh, he wonders about what Keir Starmer should be aiming for uh, at the next election. Uh, should he be planning to win an overall majority, uh, be the largest party in a hung parliament, or to deny the Conservatives an overall majority, even though um, it might be... Um, one that um, gives the Conservatives a uh, the, the largest party in a hung parliament. Uh, uh, so, yeah, which do you think they should be? Um, so he says, to my mind, Labour has surged ahead in the polls only due to the various Boris Johnson disasters of recent months. Um, so is Starmer's fate out of his own hands? Um, in hindsight, new opposition leaders Neil Kinnock in 83 and William Hague in 97 had no chance. I agree with that. That's one of the themes of my book about Prime Minister's Never Had. We never had. Neil Kinnock in 1983 had no hope uh, because the mountain was just too high to climb in one term. And by two terms, voters are fed up of leaders of the opposition. Uh, Stuart adds, I listened to the podcast while ironing my collection of Union Jack socks. I'll happily buy you a pair and bring them along to King's Place if there are any interests. Yeah, I'd, I want a pair. I, Frosty wears them all the time. And Frosty is a great model for me and everybody else. So, um, uh, yeah, oh, I'm, I'm up for a pair of those Union Jack socks. Um, so I think Starmer, like any leader of the opposition, frankly, has to... Oh, by the way, um, he, uh, Stuart says, I'm one of the growing band of mavericks who listen to your podcast. Yeah, I like mavericks. Oh, yeah, Stuart says, I'm right-leaning and Brexit-supporting. Um, but I'm concerned about the dangers of one party winning general elections continuously, um, particularly given the potential consequences for Scotland. Well, yeah, I, I love it. So I love it when, uh, you know, kind of right wing Brexiteers engage and listen and things. Uh, some of them tweet to me. Um, and yeah, so fantastic. You're not a maverick. I, 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 I adore you for listening. Um uh, but I think any leader of the opposition, uh, is that why you're offering me the Union Jack so socks? Because you genuinely idolise Lord Frost, Stuart, David Frost. Anyway, um, any leader of the opposition has to pitch to the electorate as a whole. Any targeting in a clunky way on, say, the Red Wall or whatever, um, 
won't work. It's got to be a pitch to the country as a whole. And you hope in doing that to win an overall majority. I'm sure Starmer is working on the assumption that a hung parliament is not a bad outcome. Um, and one in which Labour is the largest party gets him into number 10. Um, and um, he's right about that. If Labour are the largest party in a hung parliament, the smaller parties, including the SNP, will not back the continuation of this Conservative government for a fifth term. But that might be in his mind, but as a leader, you have to aim high and frame your policies accordingly. I look forward to the socks. Um, now, we, I liked getting our regular uh, Dominica Jewel perspective from France. Uh, Dominica's based in France. The consequences of political corruption in France clearly differ considerably from those in the UK. Two former presidents, Sarkozy and Chirac, have been tried and convicted of illegally financing their election campaigns and political parties. Francois Fillon's conviction for the embezzlement of public funds and the implication of his wife Penelope in the fake job scandal led to the collapse of the right in French politics, a consequence from which they have yet to recover. Conversely, the lack of consequences for UK politicians who break the law is highly noticeable. Well, we'll have to see, Dominica. I suspect there will still be consequences, although, as I've said, I'm not entirely sure because it's over to the Conservative Parliamentary uh, Party. Um, but usually there would be. Um, in this case, no one quite knows. But again, the contrast with France is uh, very interesting. Thank you. Uh, Jeff Strange, a great rock and roll at King's Place. Oh, thank you very much. Little did we know how events were to unfold over the following days. Events, dear boy. Yeah, it is, it is fast moving on one level and yet static in some respects, this current situation. Along with other excellent books in my possession, I've been reading John Kampfner's excellent Why the Germans Do It Better. It is, yeah, great book. Uh, he's a friend of mine and I admire him hugely for that book. Coincidentally, a good old German friend of mine fired an email to me the other day asking the same that Kampfner quotes in his book, What's Happened to You, My British Friends? Um, He's, and Jeff then wonders, are we a country destined to be ruled and not governed by uh, sort of poor, uh, showy politicians? Is there a Angela Merkel type available, if only on a part-time basis, in British politics? Uh, now, Jeff, I know where this is leading. It ends up with advocating changing the voting system we've got a lot of that Andrew Kitching has written saying what you know this is why we've got to change the voting system um so I'm going to miss that one out you're all waiting for the electoral reform special I'm, I'm gonna have to take various pills to get ready for that one um but it is interesting that the German politics is a lot less theatrical and therefore produces less theatrical figures we are closer to the sort of presidential U.S. politics where it, performers tend to prevail, um, whereas she just uh, got on with it. Um, and, and Jeff wonders whether that used to be the case with Wilson, Heath, Brown, and so on. Well, in different ways, not Heath. Uh, they were performers, actually. Uh, Wilson learned to have a sense of humour, according to one of his friends. 
Um, anyway, thank you, Jeff. Uh, John Baldler says, as the COVID crisis fades, will Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland have less opportunity to suggest that they're doing things better than England and the United Kingdom government? Uh, well, they've certainly made the most of that opportunity. And yeah, I assume that distinctiveness will now uh, fade. But um, they made their points, didn't they, during that period? And it did feel... Uh, during the pandemic. It was one of the interesting sort of, I'm going to use that word again, consequences, an awareness that the United Kingdom is now ruled by, you know, uh, people in Northern Ireland, England, Scotland, Wales, in different ways, in key policy areas. And most of the time in England, you forget that, frankly. Um, and that was a vivid reminder. Anthony uh, Wilson, I listened to you whilst cooking the evening meal and having a question aired by you made the roast veg taste especially sweet. Oh, yeah, roast veg. Um, that sounds good and a good way of listening to the podcast. Uh, and he mentions uh, Brexit, does Anthony Wilson, from a sunny Exeter. I can't understand why the opposition isn't going there. Most of the anal analysis I've read estimates that the UK lost £12 billion of trade in October alone. Thinking of the famous bus in the referendum campaign, £12 billion of tax revenues is worth a lot of hospitals. Yeah, um, they're not. Labour aren't going to make the case um, in that way. They're scared to do so. They're scared to appear as if they are still Remainers. Johnson still regards Brexit as his protective shield. Uh, when asked about his integrity, he said, I'll tell you about my integrity. I delivered the referendum. This lot, the elite, we're going to ignore it. And Labour, as a result of all of that, are too scared. Now, I think there are ways of framing arguments about it. They should do. I don't think they will. Uh, Lee Wall from Liverpool. Um, I've just seen your retweet. Uh, I retweeted. I'm always kind of on Twitter. You know, aren't we all? Aren't we all? I bet most of us are. Uh, who uh, Christopher Hope from the, uh, he's a journalist who compared Boris Johnson's potential downfall to that of Margaret Thatcher. Uh, you accurately pointed out that the removal of Thatcher was followed by a fourth Conservative election victory. However, I was wondering... Oh, I know what the tweet was. Christopher Hope uh, from The Telegraph tweeted that um, Boris Johnson was... Uh, his advisers and allies were warning Tory MPs, don't do what you will regret later, uh, like Tory MPs apparently regretted the removal of Thatcher. Well, actually, what happened after the removal of Thatcher is that John Major won them an election she might well have lost. Um, and so I kind of made that point. Um, there are, at this point, very few parallels, uh, Lee, between the fall of Thatcher and Johnson's current position. Um, there is no obvious heavyweight waiting in the wings. Thatcher had Heseltine lurking. Uh, Jeremy Hunt is the equivalent on the backbenches. He's not in Heseltine's league as a, a sort of focus for uh, a, a bid to remove Johnson. Um, at the moment, as we were saying earlier, most Tory MPs are with him and the cabinet so far uh, are are backing him. They've made the, they know what he's like, but they've made the calculation that he's going to stay and that they need his patronage. And on that basis, uh, Sunak, Truss and all the others are backing him. Now, obviously, with Thatcher, the cabinet backed him at the her at the time, but they moved speedily. 
This might happen with the full publication of the Gray Report, but it's not there yet. But you're right, Lee, it, you've got to look for the parallels to work out if Johnson is going to fall, and the parallels are not in place yet. Uh, Mike Barth writes that he bumped into a friend of his, Lloyd Powell, who happens to be Lucy Powell's father. Lucy Powell, the Labour frontbench shadow cabinet person and MP for Manchester Central. We were agreeing that the level of intelligence of the current Tory leadership was lamentable. I could list you half a dozen senior business managers of major private sector enterprises I've worked with or for, for four down the years who demonstrated much more nous than Boris, Jacob Rees-Mogg and co. Have I misread them? Um, uh, and how has this come about? Uh, Lloyd and I, this is Lucy Powell's dad, uh, ended our chat by concluding that what was urgently needed was a royal commission into the standards of education at Eton. There is a great theme, I think someone's writing a book about it, about uh, the Etonian uh, consequences, uh, producing Cameron and Johnson, both deeply competitive, both very self-absorbed, uh, both with a sort of English exceptionalist view of history, um, and uh, yeah, it is it is bizarre. The, the the previous Eton generation of Tory leaders, Macmillan, Eden, and others, were also framed by the war. Uh, Macmillan represented Stockton for a time in the northeast of England, and they were far deeper uh, and thoughtful figures and that's not just being a, a rab butler and others not that they're i don't think butler can't remember which school he went to i've written about butler i can't remember what school he went to um but anyway they were much much weightier figures than this etonian group today um so yeah and, and there are many other reasons by the way why the quality of representation across the board i'm afraid mike not just on the Tory side, um, the culture of localism, which I bet a lot of you approve of. You know that local candidates must get the must be selected in constituencies. It means that big figures who got in in the past just can't get a seat. Um, you know, Tony Crossland, uh, Labour's great kind of cabinet minister intellectual, <clears throat> got a seat in Grimsby. Much harder now to do that kind of thing. Uh, Dominic Lee, uh, just reflecting on the live show this week about Johnson's post-prime ministerial career. That obviously came up in the live show. Can't remember that bit, Dominic. Um, I wondered if he would gain credibility post a general election if the Tories lost the red wall under a different leader. Um, yeah, I think... Um, oh, yeah, Dominic was the one who got tickets from Helen, the bread maker. Helen couldn't make it. She tweeted she couldn't make it, and Dominic got the tickets. Um, so, yeah, um, hope you enjoyed it. And um, you can get your own tickets next time, Dominic. Uh, February the 21st. Um, a lot going on. Um, but it's a very good point, actually, that uh, if Johnson were to go in the current situation... Uh, he will be tormented by it for many reasons, but one of them will be his post-prime ministerial career uh, will not get off to a good start. Uh, some of the job offers that he both yearns for and needs financially will not come at first if he goes in disgrace. Um, but over time, I suspect it will be seen 
that he alone can or did create a unique coalition for the Tory party, these Labour voters and uh, the traditional Tory voters. It is a bizarre coalition. It is forged by Brexit or a fantastical view of Brexit. Um, but he was the key personality that did the binding. And I suspect if Sunak or Truss or any of these got it, that coalition becomes very vulnerable. And that does give Johnson in his post-prime ministerial career, and he will remain a big personality in a party lacking big personalities, um, a, a platform. He was the vote winner. And as you point out, Blair is in that similar position. Um, he didn't go in the same darkness, although it got quite dark with Iraq, very dark. Um, but he is the one that won three elections, and that gives him a platform. Um, and, oh yeah, uh, David asks, uh, oh yeah, I met David uh, with his uh, friend Priscilla after the show uh, at King's Place. Uh, we were in the bar together. So, hi David, thank you so much for coming uh, to the show. Um, and his question is, amongst the chaos of the Partygate saga, there's been relatively little discussion or analysis of the impact of Christian Wakefield defecting from Tory to Labour. Yeah, good point. That was sort of, you know, defections are usually huge stories, but it's only been an element of this. And in our current Alice in Wonderland world, the, the general view was that it benefited Johnson that a defection to Labour took place. Uh, it's the first direct Tory to Labour defection since Quentin Davis in 2007, yeah, just after Gordon Brown became Prime Minister. Uh, the Labour Party seems split between those on the left of the party focusing on Wakeford's voting record with comments uh, such as that he's a raging Tory who's voted for appalling things. And on the other hand, MP some MPs are welcoming him to the party and political commentators would describe it as a win for Labour. For me, the momentum approach of demonising uh, the momentum, as in momentum with a capital M, of demonising former Tories, Tory voters, doesn't seem sensible or a tangible way to build up a political coalition. Yeah, I think you are right about that. Defections are a huge coup for a party under normal times. And say, slightly perversely, this was seen as a setback for Labour and a triumph for Johnson almost. Um, but uh, it normally, and in this case, it, it is a coup because it deeply destabilizes, in the end, the party that loses the MP. Cameron got into a terrible state about Tory MPs defecting to UKIP, um, and it was a massive boost for Farage when it happened. And because it, it's symbolic, it conveys a sense of unease about the party an MP is leaving, and a sense that the future lies with the party the MP has moved towards. Um, so, yeah, I agree with you. And David adds, I'm most likely to be listening to the podcast doing laps of Bermondsey Spa Gardens as I gear up for work in the morning. Is that running or swimming? Have you got one of those headphones where you can swim and listen and they're waterproof? I've always wondered what that was like. But anyway, great. Yeah, bit of exercise and listening. Um, that's we're getting. I'm getting less comments these days about I'm running and listening and rowing. It's more food and pleasure of a more kind of hedonistic sort. Heather Howells, uh, 
Oh, thank you for the event at King's Place. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much for watching. Uh, when you were discussing the long-standing divisions in the Conservative Party, I went back. We tried to delve deep at King's Place. I went back as far as 1975 um, in, you know, kind of light-hearted look at the 70s. Um, when you were discussing the long-standing divisions in the Conservative Party, it occurred to me that they continue to win elections despite their continuing differences. Can Starmer, and if so, how, exploit these divisions to better effect? Unlike many other listeners, I don't tend to listen to the podcast while I'm making sourdough. Oh, right. As I'm too easily distracted, but love listening during regular hour-long car journeys back and forth uh, to Harpenden. Uh, yeah, Heather, I I kind of listen to podcasts in, during car journeys, and they I, I can't bear long car journeys. Not that yours is that long. Um, and podcasts make a fantastic difference um by the way i have to confess i don't make sourdough bread um i keep on getting offers but never receiving any from all the bread makers out there it's like john lennon in the mid 70s everyone baking bread um it is true all uh, that uh, the conservative party has been uh, an awkward coalition for a long time um, and that quite often Labour has failed to exploit it. In the 1980s, there were the economic wets who deeply opposed Margaret Thatcher's economic policies, but she prevailed to such a point that it was quite hard to argue that there was division. She just beat them. And in a way, Johnson did that with the purge of Ken Clark, Oliver Letwin, um, Nicholas Soames, you know, in the autumn of 2019. Um, but... There is still a deep division, uh, and I've kind of highlighted what it is. They want tax cuts, but higher spending. They want, you know, safety, but uh, no COVID restrictions, all these kind of things. And, yeah, I think one of the arts of opposition is to highlight and almost exaggerate the scale of the division. Tony Blair did that very effectively against the major administration and it was one of the factors that led to a big victory for him um uh so let's just say yeah will uh, kathy meas wonders whether the johnson strategy will work um you know kicking the whole thing into the long grass once again with the police investigation and so on well it might it might in terms of saving him we just don't know i still doubt it but as i say we've got to get into the minds of conservative mps who uh keep on changing their minds on the matter um oh yeah um uh, mark writes and a mark uh, writes from uh norway um and points out that one of the uh, most recent readers questions on the guardian's notes and queries page was as followed why are the tories pulled to the right by breakaway parties like ukip and so on but uh, Labour are pulled to the centre. I suppose you mean with the SDP, are you? Because, uh, you know, that's that's the only real equivalent there's been. Um, uh, do I agree with that statement? Uh, yeah, yeah, I do. Um, uh, you know, when there are... Uh, oh, yeah, well, sort of, I do. I mean, Change UK, that... that silly party that was formed briefly in the last parliament didn't have any impact at all frankly um uh, but th there's no doubt at all that the existence of ukip the brexit party the fear of some equivalent now tends to do that with the conservative uh party and um uh, yeah 
and, and you know people jeremy corbyn it's it said might form a separate party i doubt if he will but if he does um my uh good friend david aronovich wrote in the times that'll be good news for keir starmer and labor well not necessarily the fracturing of an anti-tory vote is a real problem it's the main reason why labor's never in power uh, or hardly ever um Oh, yeah, but what Mark also offers, top bread-making tip for this week. Order flour online from Shipton Mill. They have the most incredible selection, and it's simply the best. I credit their flour for moving me from brick to bread-making. God, were you brick-making as well? Um, and, yeah, Mark is the one who's doing a book on cold water swimming. Now, I, I'm into cold water swimming, not at this time of year, pathetically, although I should be. Um, and it's going to be called Chill, the Cold Water Swim Cure. And it's out at the end of June. Let us know when it's out. I'm going to get hold of it, Mark. So that's Mark Harper writing from Norway. He's presumably swimming in those icy lakes in Norway. Um, oh God, we, I've been going for more than 50 minutes. Just a couple more. Gina uh, Doka, as ever, I'm enjoying your podcast during this turbulent time. Thank you. In your last episode, you mentioned that Johnson continuing would be the best immediate outcome for Starmer but surely the longer Johnson goes on and the scandals continue the more any replacement will look fresh in comparison whenever they do take over um, yeah that is a, a, a strong possibility if there is a successor nearer the general election and this is what happened with John Major after Thatcher they will get a honeymoon however flawed that successor will be um but um no, actually i don't think that is my view by the way i think that is the view of labor figures that it's better for him to carry on my view is uh as as starmer really did in his statement on monday you go you, you go for the kill if you're in opposition um but it's again not up to them it's up to these conservative mps it's the absolute key to um the whole thing um uh, robert twell a regular listener, oh, thank you, and online viewer of the streams from King's Place. Oh, thank you very much, Robert. I noticed your recent comments on Labour's habit of losing, and you suggest they needed to offer something better and more coherent to the public. I always thought that Labour's problem has been the progressive vote being split with the Lib Dems, but checking the statistics, that's not really borne out. Labour have won when there has been a high Lib Dem vote and lost when it's been low. That is true. 97 being an example um uh so i do think however the decline of the unions and class identity has damaged labor and helped the more aspirational tories labor has lost due to social change its original constituency and failed to find another all of that's true robert but i think the fractured vote as we've just been saying when the parties set up and you know all the rest of it um at the moment you've got the greens lib dems labor uh, and uh, probably others, um, as part of uh, a kind of informal anti-Tory group of parties. If that vote is split all over the place, the only benefits will be uh, the Conservatives. Um, Harry Lewis writes, um, uh, I hope you're well. Yeah, I'm okay. Thank you, Harry. Huge fan of the podcast. Oh, thank you. Um, and so he says he's struggling with flu. Oh, I hope you're feeling better by now. I found myself watching old, the old, my old talks um, uh, about, um, 
Yeah, yeah. I've got a load of talks on YouTube. With a base, I did them for the BBC. Then now on YouTube or the BBC iPlayer, you'll probably know about them. Prime ministers and turning points in politics and so on. Um, he wondered. He, yeah, he 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 had some thoughts about Charles Kennedy, who he found to be the most authentic and legitimate figure I watched. Oh, these are old YouTube kind of films of you know political figures in action. Um, as he was never in a realistic position to be a prime minister. I understand he's not a figure who's focused on very often, but I wondered your thoughts about Charles Kennedy. Charles Kennedy was really uh, interesting. He had a capacity to connect with voters uh, that was instinctive and natural. Um, and as a TV performer, he was uh, very effective. Um, and I, you could never quite work out why. It was just... Uh, capacity he had as I say instinctively and uh, he's greatly missed and it's desperately sad and um, I knew him a bit liked him extremely nice guy um, and I saw Alistair Campbell when he he goes up uh, every year uh, at New Year to stay very near where Charles Kennedy lived and he played the bagpipes at Charles Kennedy's grave I, I found it moving I, I kind of he, he was uh, interesting and by the way someone deeply hostile to the uh, Cameron Clegg arrangement from 2010. He could see the dangers in a way that Clegg could not. Now we've got some other fantastic questions from Noah Keat, Ben Pope, uh, Anthony in, Ant uh, uh, in Canterbury, Jonathan Rice doing the ironing, brilliant one from Lance Brinded and, and many others, uh, Gail Johnson, uh, Hugh Carr has pointed out, by the way, you know this thing we were doing about families with different political parties uh, based on butskillism, you know, Rab Butler and Hugh Gateskill. Uh, he points out that Stanley Baldwin's son was a Labour MP. I didn't know that. Um, that so there we go. There's another one. Um, now, I've made a... I'll, I'll keep a note of those ones that I haven't read up, so they're all brilliant. Uh, but I'll be going for nearly an hour. And I want to find out whether Boris Johnson is still around. I think he will be. And you will be busy uh, now eating the bread you've baked or having a coffee after a run or uh, a swim or whatever. Uh, so I'm not going to read any more out now. Uh, but please join me again next week. Please keep the questions coming. Uh, they are brilliant. And I'm uh, kind of despairing that I haven't really got time to read any more out. Um, but keep them coming in. Uh, for new listeners... I, I now know the email address off by heart. It's steverick14 at iCloud.com. Anyway, we are living in wild times. So let's get together again next week to make sense of it all. A couple of big announcements next week, by the way. Um, so uh, stay tuned for those. And um, yeah, King's Place, live on February the 21st, Monday, February the 21st. There are streaming tickets as well if you can't make it on their website. And let's all get together next week. In the meantime, have a great time. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye.